Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. Today, I'm joined by Ruth Rankin, who is the Director of Primary Care at the NHS Confederation. I really wanted Ruth on to kind of, I know she won't like me saying this, but to deliver her top tips and a bit of a masterclass on facilitation, especially when you are trying to engage with so many members or so many stakeholders. And she offers some really excellent advice for us. And whilst this conversation is very specific to primary care, there is a commonality around how do you engage and mobilise strategy at a national level that we all be able to learn from, even if we are outside of primary care. Hey, Ruth, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thank you very much, Tara, for inviting me. Can you share where you work and what your current role is today? So I'm director of the Primary Care Network at NHS Confederation. NHS Confederation is a membership organisation which represents the whole of the NHS providers and commissioners, both in uh, England, Wales and Northern Ireland. So within NHS Confederation, we have networks for each of the sectors and I'm director of the primary care network. What does a network do? So we have three roles. Um, One is uh, to support members. So in the primary care network, our members are primary care providers working at scale. So predominantly that's PCNs and GP federations, although we've got some super partnerships as well. Uh, So our role is to support members. So where people are struggling, either with the day job or with some strategic issues or maybe, you know, relationship issues within their place or their system, we can help to support them either directly ourselves or by facilitating support from either other members in other networks, for example, mental health trusts or acute trusts or putting them in touch, you know, with other people who've had the same problem. So there's a big bit around the support for our members. The second role that we've got is about connecting people. So where people are struggling with the same problem or are doing something great, you know, in in around the same area, whether that might be reducing health inequalities or, you know, working with communities, 
then uh, we, we bring people together in forums around specific topics or around specific roles to just connect and, and start to grow communities um, around some of those themes or issues. And the third part of our role is about advocacy. So it's, you know, representing and influencing. So through our day-to-day work with members, obviously we've got a really good understanding of some of the issues. So we will, through our ongoing engagement with national stakeholders, NHS England or the department, you know, we will feed those views back to um, those national organisations. But what we like to do is not just talk about the problems. We also talk to our members and work with our members on so what, you know, what are the solutions? Who's who solved this problem? Is that something that, you know, we could start to talk about more openly and showcase and share good practice? So we, you know, we, we highlight the issues, but we like to be focused on what the potential solutions are as well. And could you share what are the current, what are you currently talking to your members about? What are the current challenges? And can you point to some examples where... The networks have overcome that. So I think obviously workforce, you know, is a big, big issue. PCNs have done, you know, phenomenally well in terms of recruiting into the additional roles. But we know that there are specific challenges. Mental health practitioners is a really good example. You know, that may start with one PCN saying we're having real problems recruiting mental health practitioners. We're trying to work with our mental health trust and we're not getting very far. And then you start to talk to other members and say, well, actually, has anyone solved this or is anyone having the same problem? And this is a real live issue for us at the moment. So over the last week, we've we've collected information from members say, OK, who's got it sorted? Who's struggling? And we're building up that picture. So as a result of that, we will then pull together, you know, where people have made it work. How have they done that? And a lot of the time, it's about relationships, you know, as is everything. So we'll we'll produce some case studies around, you know, for people to talk about how they've made it work and to give useful advice to other areas. For those areas that are struggling, sometimes it is just outside of their control. So. Within Confed, we've got a mental health network. So I will talk to my counterpart in the mental health network to talk about what can we do together to try and help facilitate a solution. So, for example, that might be bringing together a group of our PCN members with our mental health trust members and talking about what is standing in the way of of making this happen. What we would also do, for example, is gather that intelligence and speak to the relevant person in NHS England to say, you know, people are having these issues. How can we help you to to sort it out? And, you know, so we'll have a conversation about what sorts of things we might do. And that might be, you know, intervention from the ICS. It might be intervention from the region. So, so very much focused on sharing good practice where it's working well, and but equally escalating where you know, things are just outside of people's control. So that's a big, really big issue that we're working on around workforce. The the other sort of big program that we're working on at the moment, obviously, we had the Fuller Stock Take uh, published a few months ago, and we see our role as 
helping to support implementation of the stock take recommendations. So obviously ICS has signed off the report and support the recommendations. Within Confed, we've got an ICS network. So we will work closely together as two networks um, to support ICSs and primary care to, to work towards implementing the, the recommendations. So we're setting up in primary care network a number of what we're calling design groups around each of the themes from the stock takes where we bring people together who've, you know, who are actually doing, doing the work now, who, you know, who've got neighborhood teams, for example to bring people together to talk about what they're doing, to share that. And out of those, we'll produce case studies, we'll run webinars, we'll do some showcasing visits. And then sitting around each of the design groups will be a community of practice. So for people who haven't got the time to get involved in more conversation, but want to understand what's coming out and learn from it and, and, um, and, and be able to share maybe what they're doing as well. So We've got lots going on at the minute, very, very busy time, but actually it's, you know, it's really exciting. So lots of people are talking about, you know, what happens after 2024? And I know we've had the fuller stock take report and it's a hard question to answer, but do you think PCNs will remain after 2024? Yes. Why is that? So I think a number of things really, I think the... The pandemic, there are a number of influencing factors that mean we we can't go back to the way things were. So if you think about the workforce, if you think about funding, if you think about patient access, there there is a place for working at scale. And, and whether that's about stabilizing general practice where, you know, practices may be struggling. So you've got something that's sitting around general practice to support general practice. It may be the workforce issues. So actually, you know, there aren't enough GPs or there aren't enough primary care staff. So actually delivering some services at a, a scale above practice makes sense in terms of economies of scale. And, and when I talk about scale, it could be PCNs or it could be, for example, federations or place providers of primary care. And I think what we've got to do is demonstrate what PCNs have delivered and achieved that if we hadn't had PCNs, it just wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't have achieved a lot or we wouldn't have a lot of the services in place that we've currently got we wouldn't have a lot of the workforce roles in place that we've currently got so you know I know there is conversation about the PCN model and the construct but personally working at individual practice level without sort of being able to deliver some services at scale I can't see how how that is a way forward. I just don't think the workforce or the funding enables us to move back, you know, from at scale provision. This might be a hard question, and someone posed this to me, is how impartial can you be without being seen to protect your own castle? So could, can you objectively say, well, in some areas, PCNs aren't working? And in some areas they are. Does it have to be uniform? Like how can the confed be really objective and look at the landscape without 
constantly going PCNs of the future because that's part of your role in your domain? So I think whether you say PCNs of the future or at scale working is the future, there is a role for delivering primary care at scale above general practice. We know that in some areas of the country, you know, some PCNs are struggling. And sometimes that's for reasons outside of their control. And our job is to support those PCNs, which is what we are doing. And sometimes, you know, so when you look at the PCNs that are thriving, I think there's often a number of factors that that sort of sit below that. One is that they've sort of got history of working at scale. So they may have been a primary care home and they've, you know, evolved that model. So they've got years of experience. They've got years of, you know, building their relationships, working with their local communities. So that's one thing. I think secondly is they've got really strong leadership in place through the PCN clinical director and through the PCN manager. And I think they've got the leaders who are strategic and and who also know how to build a team around them so that they're not struggling with, you know, the amount of work they've got to do, they're able to delegate and share. I think the third thing is that they have, they've got a supportive system you know, previously CCG, now ICS. You know, we know that there are some ICS in the country that are really, really doing really good stuff to support PCNs and and their development. So I think, you know, those are some of the things. Oh, I'm sorry, the, the fourth thing I think is when we've looked at thriving PCNs, there's also something that they quite often have, for example, a federation that's providing infrastructure support, workforce support training and development support. So they've got, they're not necessarily, you know, doing all the back office type functions themselves as well. They've actually, you know, got that support being provided by a federation, for example. So I think there's a number of factors that when you look at thriving PCNs, you can see it. That doesn't mean if you haven't got that, you can't thrive, but I think it's, it's more difficult. So, you know, we know that there are some areas where it's not working as well we can and and we've got to get in below that and understand why and then use that intelligence in our conversations with NHS England and the department about actually how do we make these a success for everybody. So going back to the thing you said around you're trying to find out from your members what value the Confederation gives us or gives them what has been the feedback so far um, I think it really depends on um, where you are in terms of your um, your journey as a PCN and your maturity as a PCN as an organization or quasi organization um, so a lot of members value the support that we give Um, And if I give you a couple of examples, so one of the things that we do um, when NHS England produces guidance, and we know that they like to produce a lot of guidance, that guidance is going to people who are really, really busy and and, and particularly PCN clinical directors 
um, who've got really limited time to focus on their PCN work and haven't got time to read long documents. So um, our usual practice is that within 24 hours of that guidance coming out, unless it's short guidance anyway, but where it's long guidance, we will summarize the guidance um, and put that out to our members um, as, as a, our sort of rule of thumb is, is no longer than two pages. So um, things like our guidance summaries, we, we also have an app because we're conscious that uh, people don't like getting lots of emails. And of course, since, you know, during COVID, we had an explosion of WhatsApp groups established. And, and it's quite hard to keep track of conversations on WhatsApp groups or you miss something really important. So um, about 12 months ago, we, uh, we developed an app uh, for PCNs and now obviously for GP federations as well. And you can sign up, you can download our app from um, Apple Store or through Android. And um, there, when you get into the app, you'll find the discussion forum, um, we have communities of interest in there. So, for example, we've got a really good community of interest for health coaches. Um, uh, you find you know, resources in there like case studies and um, webinar recordings or presentations. So I think a lot of people appreciate the, that support element. I think for others that are maybe more mature PCNs um, or have been working as a quasi PCN for for a, you know for a number of years, they actually want to be more involved in our influencing work. So obviously, um, at the moment, there's sort of a couple of um, key pieces of work that are going on. So one is um, health select committee into future of general practice, and the second thing is Claire Fuller's review into what integrated primary care looks like within systems and how systems can support delivery of integrated primary care. So in those sorts of things, we would bring a selection of members together into um, a, a, a virtual meeting, talk to them, we'd ask them questions around, you know, which help obviously help us craft a response for the review and we would then write that up in the case of the health select committee we would obviously submit that as as written evidence for claire's review it's quite interesting we're, we're going to work really closely with claire um, in terms of facilitating some of her engagement with primary care providers but not just primary care so using our position as confed in representing the whole system to facilitate engagement with the ics network of which Claire is obviously a, a part as an ICS leader but also with our um, acute network and our mental health network because this is about how primary care works with other providers in the system not just you know how primary care works on its own. So it's probably worth saying that our paths first crossed I think it was due to Dr Fasada Hussein and one of the things I kind of my observations about you and why I wanted to get you onto the podcast is you're really good at facilitating the conversation and obviously with your wider stakeholders and wider members and gaining that consensus, consolidating all of that information and then kind of putting it back out there again. 
And I think many of us find ourselves in a similar situation, but probably to a lesser degree, we're not communicating nationally. And I just wanted to kind of pick your brains a little bit around the top tips that you, you know, how do you do it? And how have you learned that skill? And how does it feel when you're doing it? Uh, well, in response to the last one, I probably don't know I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's one of those things. I, I think it's, you know, it's just, it comes with experience. And um, throughout my career, I've been in situations where, you know, you've got to facilitate a conversation or a meeting and um, you've got to reach a conclusion, whether it's in that meeting or um, that, you know, it's part of a, a sort of a series of meetings I think the first thing for me is that people talk about engagement, but mean different things by that. And I think um, some people approach engagement as a bit of a tick box, you know, to say I've engaged with and therefore everything's fine. And we're, you know, we're continuing on the journey that I've, I've started but so for me, engagement is, you know, is is proper engagement that you've got the right people in the room for the conversation that you're going to have. And and sometimes that can be difficult because it, it can mean you exclude others. But I think that as long as you're open and honest about what you're trying to achieve and the contributions that you're looking for, um, I think people understand that. So that's the first thing in terms of the right people in the room. I think being very clear about what you're trying to achieve up front and being open and honest about what the red lines are. So in lots of situations, you know, there will be, there are just givens. So there's only so much that's up for debate or up for negotiation. So there are some red lines. So I think you've got to be open and honest about that. And again, people usually accept that. Um, so that then helps you to really understand what really is up for debate and discussion. Demonstrating that you're listening. I also think it's, it's I think busy people, um, particularly at the moment, struggle with going into a room with a blank sheet of paper. I think for some situations it works, but I think at the moment with everyone so busy, to help facilitate a sort of a structured conversation, um, it's important to go in to the meeting with something written down. And whether that be, you know, just some ideas or whether that be a set of proposals but just to have something on paper to structure the conversation. And I think people find it easier to think about things if they can sort of see something written down first, which then helps sort of, you know, with, it, with idea generation. And sometimes it also provokes a reaction, which equally is, is useful. So I was in a meeting recently where um, we weren't quite sure how things were going to go and actually... We did, we, the tactic we deployed was a bit of shock tactic. So let's put this in front of these people and see how shocked they are. And then that tells us how far away we are from where we need to be. Um, and actually, they weren't that shocked. So it, it sort of, I think there's something about provoking a reaction um, sometimes in, in a safe way. I think the other thing is, you know, demonstrating that you have listened. And so when you're chairing meetings, you know, 
we've both been in meetings, Tara, where, you know, it's dominated by one person's voice or, you know, a few voices. And I think a really good chair is, is really good at bringing everyone's voice in and helping everyone to feel that they've got something to say. And there's always those people who don't necessarily feel comfortable speaking um, in that sort of environment either. So, again, a good chair is bringing those people in and, and giving them, you know, giving them permission to speak um, and, and making them feel that their voice is important as others. I think that there are, it's important to, to prepare as well before you go into those sorts of conversations. So, you know, if you're handling a difficult conversation, um, knowing where people are going to, become, going to be coming from and actually not waiting to get into the meeting to have that conversation, but having those individual conversations outside the meeting, which gives you more time to explain what it is you're trying to do, to listen to their viewpoint. You still might not agree, but it really helps in terms of the conversation you then have in the meeting, because you can acknowledge some of those maybe differences of opinion in the meeting. I think having clear timescales on, on what you're trying to achieve and by when um, really helps to focus people's minds as well. Um, and, and you won't always keep everyone happy, but I think that's where you've got to, in some ways, set those rules in advance to say, you know, to acknowledge that it's unlikely that you will get to a decision that everyone likes. But I think people have got to accept, you know, a majority. If, if the majority of people agree with what's being put forward, then they understand that they have to go with that. But, tr but trying as far as possible to take on board people's comments and reflect that in, in what you're proposing. It's really helpful. But going back to the beginning, you said sometimes you have to exclude people and people are usually accepting of that. And I think that people will be listening to this and saying, you know, it's not nice if you're that person that's excluded and you really feel that you can contribute or that you really feel like they're missing something by not having your voice or your organisation in that conversation. So how do you exclude people and maintain the relationship? Um, I think... You know, in terms of what I've said about being open about what it is, what it is we're trying to achieve or what the meeting is about and understanding what people have got to contribute to that conversation. And I'm not saying this is in, in every situation, but I think, you know, we've all been in those situations where we've got to deliver something really quickly. Yeah. Um, and it's just being clear about, you know, the contributions that we need or the experience that we're looking for or the knowledge that we're looking for. And there's also something about representation. So, you know, if you if you feel that you've got a, a voice already or, you know, a number of voices that already represent that, sort of, whether it's a sector or a profession or service or whatever it might be, then there's something about not not having over domination by one particular group in a discussion either. So it's about having a real balance of perspectives across whether it's professional groups or sectors or, or whatever it might be. But I think, um, I mean, ultimately, you know, being open with people and obviously you can often pick up where, where there are, um, where there are issues and just having a conversation um, 
And, you know, at the end of the day, if people want to come into the conversation, you know, unless there's any particular reason they can't, then we would always accommodate that. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes so I think I asked you this, it was a couple, it might have been a couple of weeks ago in London, but when you've got a high profile role like yourself, that may invite on occasions quite a lot of negative feedback. How do you manage, how do you manage that negative feedback? And do you receive any, I'm making the assumption, do you receive negative feedback? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, and therein lies the challenge of of you know social media and whatever it's if you put a view out there it's much easier for people to um comment on your view um or your particular take on something and and it i think it is it it's difficult as a membership organization as well because you know i go back to start we want to you know we're not a trade union so we're operating in that space of sort of advocacy and representation and 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 influencing um, direction of travel and and ultimately you know getting better services and better outcomes for patients and the public you know that's at the heart of everything that we do. We have got to tread that line carefully between you know how our members feel and the things that are troubling them and how we represent that in a way that is not just representing the problems but adding another dimension on it which is about equally we're talking to members about how we might get around that issue or how we might solve that problem or pointing to you know other providers or other parts of the country where they have around that problem um and that's about obviously helping to spread good practice and and what works um but you know and and some of that feedback is personal and you know i'm human like everyone else and you know you sort of you dwell on it for 24 hours depending how much of it is potentially 36 hours but ultimately you know the sort of the impact on on you personally um uh, sort of reduces over time yeah I suppose you must get hardened to it I, I think it I mean for me it it depends where it's coming from and uh, you know whether or not it it's sort of that's a common reaction from that person or that group whatever to whatever anyone says or whether it's about me personally and I think you know the bravest people would approach 
the individual or the organization to understand more about what the particular issue is. But it's, you know, you, you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. I don't think there's any there's any easy answer. It's and and some of it's more personal than others. When you think about your career, what was the job that made you feel like I found my thing, I want to pursue work, I want to stay in the NHS or working in healthcare and I want to kind of really climb the ladder? What was the job that made you, that was a bit of a game changer for you? I think I knew you were going to ask me this question. And I (laughs) honestly, I honestly can say, you know, there's not one job that stands out for me that was a game changer because I have, I've loved every job um, that I've done. Um, but I think that's because I've, I've been conscious about the roles that I've gone for. And I don't describe myself as a typical anything. So, you know, I, I started, my first job was, was straight out of university. I worked in what would be the equivalent of an NHS England region. In those days, it was called a regional health authority uh, in Newcastle. And um, I was working on two-year waiting lists. And I think my degree had been in business and languages. So I had assumed that I would be flying around the world, um, you know, as a high-powered businesswoman speaking French and Spanish. But obviously, that wasn't meant to be. So I ended up in a, in a temping uh, role in, in the regional health authority. And, it, and I, I guess for me, that was the moment because, you know, it was the NHS and it was a whole new world to me. And I just saw, I, I, I just got such an in-depth perspective on, on how it worked and what the issues were. And I knew, you know, within three months that this was, this was a sector that I wanted to work in, that this is where I saw my future. So that was sort of, I guess, how I accidentally ended up in the NHS. Um, And from there, I've just, you know, I I then moved into um, the civil service and stayed there for a number of years and, you know, did various secondments um, into the NHS um, and other organisations. So I have moved around um, a lot intentionally because I think, it's given me a breadth of knowledge and experience and you can see things from different perspectives. And I do think it helps you to grow as a leader um, and, and it just expands um, your awareness of, of how different parts of the system work. So, so I've never been a traditional NHS person or a traditional civil servant. You know, I've worked in policy I've worked in strategy I've been a commissioner I've been a provider I've been a regulator and now I'm an advocate so I I do things that I enjoy doing and that I believe that I will learn something from that I haven't that I don't already know or I'll learn a new skill that I don't already have. So thinking about your time in the NHS Confederation is it the job that you when you applied for the job or when you got approached for the job now doing it is it what you thought it would be well the reason I was attracted to it is yes there was a job description um but I think probably one of the lines on the job description was you've got a blank sheet of paper um and that's what attracted me so a little bit of work had been done around 
a primary care voice in Confed and um, building a sort of a stakeholder community around that. Um, but we didn't have a, a sort of a physical network or anything because there wasn't, you know, there was no full-time resource working on it. So that's what attracted me because I think I'm attracted to, to roles where you, you can start with a blank sheet of paper and design it. And you can, you know, you can see where you can make a difference. Um, I had experience of uh, NHS Confederation previously because one of my uh, previous roles in uh, the department was I was head of primary care access. And uh, I got seconded out of that role to uh, project manage the GP contract negotiations um, in 2002. Uh, when actually NHS Confederation was given the role of negotiating the contract with the BMA. So I had experience of Confed and knew what they did. You know, so it wasn't like I was coming to a completely new organisation. And obviously I've worked in and around primary care for a long time. So so I was comfortable with the subject. But, uh, you know, what excited me was building something from scratch. What what part of the job has really pushed you out of your comfort zone? Um, I would say probably the media um, side of things. So, um, you know, I have done um, media in the past. um, And, you know, I've had media training. But three months, you know, after I came into Confederation, uh, we went into lockdown and, you know, everything was about COVID. And obviously, you know, primary care got hit hard in terms of access and in terms of their own workforce and in terms of demands and then obviously we had um, the vaccination program so I've been leading uh, the sort of the confed voice on the vaccination program just because of the role of primary care as part of that Um, so a lot of that has involved uh, media interviews and I think that's that has sort of been the most challenging part, you know, particularly when they're live, because, you know, you're just thinking about every word that you're saying and who, you know, who is listening to this and, and also trying to trying to explain something quite difficult or technical in a way that the public will understand. So it's thinking about the language that you're using. And, and, you know, just thinking about what, what's the objective of what I'm trying to achieve in this interview, making sure that that's the point that you get across. You know, anyone who's done media trainings or understands, you know, about your, your, key three, your key three points, and those are the things that you just keep repeating over and over. But obviously, you know, journalists are very clever and they can um, try and take you off track. So it's not something I relish. Okay. One of the things is on the media side, one of the top tips you gave me, and you probably didn't even realise, it was, I think it will ever go, it will go down in history is when that letter came out. Um, and it was a, it wasn't a very nice time, probably for those in NHS England. And the Confed, you wrote your response and you said to me we'd we'd made the decision to let it play out and sometimes you will you know release communications and you will wait and you will see what the response is and for me that was really really helpful because I've, I'm not at that level but 
things have gone out with my clients and we have many clients and in the past I've you know like I've scrambled to try and stop it or you know like you start having conversations with people and sometimes indirectly you make their situation worse whereas sometimes actually if you just wait and see what the feedback is going to be and kind of do a bit of scenario planning in the background and then you know like you can plan your next steps and I just think that for me that just waiting um and seeing if you know like it fizzles out some things you know like it feels like a storm in a team cup and you don't need to you just need to move on and then and everybody else will move on but if you keep stoking the fire you'll keep something alive that maybe doesn't need to be yeah and and um you know i think you've got to um choose your battles and i think the in, in terms of the work that we do around advocacy and influencing, you know, there are there are things that we will say, you know, in public where the strength of feeling from our members is so great. But there's also, you know, the conversations that can happen um, behind closed doors as well. And, you know, ultimately, I don't believe that anyone is wants to drive general practice into the ground, you know, that. That just isn't the case. So it's how do we, you know, everyone wants, everyone believes that general practice is still the bedrock of the NHS and, you know, delivers amazing things every day. How do we, how do we make it strong for the future, given the changing environment, given changing demographics, given the challenges that are coming, you know, left field that are, are outside all of our control. So our job has got to be, you know, there are enough people criticising. We have got to be about representing the views of our members and providing helpful solutions on the way forward. And sometimes, you know, those people don't hear those solutions because, you know, I go back to where I started. Sometimes there are red lines beyond which people can't go beyond. But more often than not, we're providing input and intelligence and ideas into the centre that I would like to think, and in some cases, you know, we do have evidence of this, that they have shaped the direction of travel in a more positive way. So to finish up this interview, what's the thing you love about being part of the NHS Confederation? It's a small organisation, so it it feels, you know, you sort of feel that sense of a close team. Despite being a national organisation, we are small uh, in terms of numbers. And that's the first thing. The second thing is that you you just get that breadth of uh, perspective and knowledge about what's going on because we have the you know the directors of each of the networks come together with our communications director and our policy director you know twice a week and that's where we talk about what's going on across the networks, across the sector, politically, nationally, etc. And and that you know that sort of intelligence sharing of what's happening now, and and then that sort of what do we should we be saying something about that? What should we be saying something? And what should we be saying? So you get that breadth of knowledge of 
um, of just what's going on. And it just, it really helps when you're thinking about systems. So the risk is that if, you, if you're in a network and it doesn't matter which network in, you're just all consumed by primary care or mental health or acute. The role that we have to play as Comfed is, is driving that system way of thinking and system way of working. So, you know, understanding that you can't design redesign one part of the system without thinking about the impact that that's going to have on another part of the system. So actually you need to co-design it. So one thing I would just like to add, um, so before I was kind of a member of the NHS Confederation, people would talk about this thing, this body, this group, and they would just be absolutely glowing, buzzing, absolutely just have nothing but good things to say. And then I started to become part of the uh, board. And I'll be very honest, I was a bit like, I, don't know. I didn't feel the same excitement as other people. And then I went to, we went to London and it was just absolutely amazing. And I was like, oh, you know, I get it. I really now I get what other people were saying and get how other people feel. It feels really exciting to be part of it. And I do think it's the same kind of, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, you know, like the more you p- put in, you know, the more you get out. And I think yeah. if you yeah. just need to dip your toe in, if you're really, really busy, you know, like, and you just want that, you know, the policy guidelines and things like that, then that's, it's yeah. perfect. You know, like you can just do that. But the more yeah. you get involved, it helps, you know, like it's time consuming, but then it saves you time because you know more you know where to go if you're not quite sure if you've got an if you've got a question no matter how complex it is you know somebody will you know try to help or it will be a question yeah. that's so big it's a bit like okay we need a closer attention a close we all need to pay a bit closer attention to this so i think for people that are listening whether it's the nhs confederation or there are other membership bodies i would encourage you as somebody that was a little bit like oh i don't have time i'm not quite sure i don't know if i fit when you do get involved you get so much so much from it so yeah thank you i think the excitement is 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 about the future and and where we want to take the network and thinking about how we can use and learn from what people are out there doing and delivering and achieving to really drive drive national thinking about what the future of primary care looks like and obviously with bringing the federation network um, into confed as well you know they can sort of, they see things from a different perspective as well and they've got fantastic case studies of of what they're doing at scale and the significant interdependencies between federations and pcms um, whether that's in terms of you know em- employing staff or whether that's training and development whatever it might be so there is such fantastic work going on out there and and the real risk is that everyone just focuses on what the problem is and actually we've got to get better at showcasing the brilliant stuff that people are doing and using that to help shape you know a more exciting future for primary care. Ruth if people want to find out more about the NHS Confederation where can they go? Uh, Please log on to our website www.nhsconfed.org or follow me on Twitter 
at Rankin with an E and uh, you will find us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tara. Been a pleasure.